Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who Is at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar and you get a better buzz. <laughs> with the Savage Premium. So go to go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Well, welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. We're living in very, very difficult times. We have to ignore the war. We have to ignore the inflation. We have to ignore the cultural machinations of the far left. And I want to talk about something that many of you think you know about, and you probably do. How many times in the recent past have you met someone who whispered to you that, oh, I agree with you politically. I don't really like what's going on in this country. I'm sure more so than you would be willing to admit. We're all looking over our shoulder. Everyone's afraid of being called names. You see, we are already living in a far advanced cultural communism. And so today's podcast is what a communist takeover would look like. The fact is, is that we're already past the initial stages. And if we fail to learn from history, we're certainly doomed to repeat it. The left's efforts of fueling class warfare, Black Lives Matter, minorities are oppressed, LGBTQ people are oppressed, straight people are no good, and the silencing of those who disagree is a form of brainwashing and communism. I recently had the good uh, fortune to speak with a wonderful, distinguished author named Jung Chang. I wrote a book many years ago called Wild Swans, The Three Daughters of China, Jung Chang. I've had this book in my library for many years. She was born in Sichuan Province, China in 1952. She left China in 1978. And she lives in London, England, where I spoke with her. And she took us inside China to see what happened, how it happened, how the forces of history uh, affected her family. The book is Wild Swans. It's a remarkable book. And the book mirrors the tumultuous 20th century in China, a time of communist revolution, the upheaval, the tragedy, and the awakening of the people. And I'll tell you more about her in a minute, and then you will listen to us speak together. But before we get there, I have to go backwards a little bit and tell you that we are in America living through a form of cultural communism. Already we are being publicly shamed. You'll see a picture on my website called, the title of the podcast is What a Communist Takeover Would Be Like. And there is a picture, a graphic attached to it, right? of a public official being shamed by the Red Guard. This was a man who had power prior to the communist takeover. Look at the anger on the face of the, quote, young Chinese who are shaming him. Does that not look like Black Lives Matter trying to shame all white people into uh, giving them money, submitting to them? Does it not look like occasional cortex, perhaps the most dangerous politician in the history of America? It certainly does to me. 
fact of the matter is the Marxist or Maoist intellectuals who are tearing down Western culture want to rip out the mind, heart, and soul from our culture and substitute for it a frightening, frightening substitution that will only result in death and anarchy. It's not a surprise to me. The fact of the matter is, is that I went to Queens College in New York in the 1950s, which was really right after World War II. I certainly didn't think of it that way. It's hard for me to believe I entered college in 1959, so I've been around a little while. And many of the European educators that I had, they were nice enough people, but many of them were hardcore communists who had been thrown out of Europe. And when they came into America, they were given the sustenance that they needed, the safety, the safe harbor that they needed. And they brought with them the ideas of dismantling this nation. And so they tried to brainwash we youngsters. The fact of the matter is, we all know about the Frankfurt School. We know about the communists of that time. We now realize the extent of 70 years of brainwashing in our schools from kindergarten all the way through graduate school. All you've got to do is look at the pathetic, puny creatures running the universities today. The pathetic, puny creatures in the media today. They don't even know that they were set up by communists to build the new society. You don't know that as far back as the 1920s, this movement was financed by millionaires like Felix Weil, and today it's funded by people like George Soros. Columbia University, with the help of Herbert Marcuse, established his left-wing utopia at Columbia in the 1930s. Unless we are willing to learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. Unfortunately, it goes well beyond cultural Marxism and public shaming. It leads to the horrors of mass murder in Mao's China and the revolution in China that resulted in deaths of tens of millions of Chinese. You will hear an interview with Yung Shang, who shares her personal account of what actually happened when the communists took over and her warnings for the future of China and for America, from my point of view. Will those of you listening to this podcast share it with others so we may heed the lessons from the Marxist revolutionaries or the Maoist revolutionaries of the past before we have passed the point of no return? I don't know. All I know is this, the unprecedented attack upon the middle class in America, especially the white middle class, is an example of the Marxism or Maoism that I am trying to warn you about. We hear it in the buzzwords, equality, equity, fairness. Those of you who have studied history know that utopias always devolve into the worst that humanity can offer, filled with envy hatred, and violence that destroys people. The Biden administration is now fueling those same old flames as they demonize first the rich. That would be Bernie Sanders, the worst man in the history of American history, who's now running the Senate Finance Committee. That's why you don't hear from Bernie Sanders anymore. He's controlling the purse strings of the Senate. You don't know that. And so he demonizes the millionaires and the billionaires, while he himself is a multimillionaire setting the American people against each other, black against white, white against black, Hispanic against this, Chinese against that, the old against the young, the young against the old. This is all part of the plan of these cultural Maoists. They claim that the struggle going on in America was against the virus. 
But it really isn't against the virus. It's against the virus of communism. And that's why I ask you today to pay close attention to this great interview to Yung Shang. I think that you're going to enjoy it. And if you do, I ask you only one favor for yourself and for your children. Don't assume others will hear the podcast unless you share it with them. You'll hear a story that you will not believe. You'll hear the story of this woman that will be hard for you to, to listen to in a way. Family tapestry, three lives unfolding, one from the other through love, desolation, and renewal. When Yung Chang's grandmother was born in 1909, China was a feudal society. In the silent world of her father's house, her feet were bound, and at age 15, she was given to a warlord general as a concubine, if you could believe this. Her life was bartered away, and for a decade, she found herself a virtual prisoner of malicious servants and a largely absentee husband. That was her grandmother. In 1932, as the general was dying, her grandmother fled his mansion with her infant daughter. The daughter would inherit her courage as she grew up under occupation by the Japanese and later the Russians. And after civil war broke out between the communists and Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, her grandmother became active in the student underground, risking her life to smuggle secrets through the nationalist strongholds to the communist forces besieging her city. After several times of being almost being captured she became a heroine she became the embodiment of the new emancipated woman and so she was then captured and she was arrested put up against the wall while the man next door was shot and killed and in the midst of this growing struggle she fell in love with a veteran guerrilla fighter a man who shared her spirit and commitment that's the grandmother and Yung shang takes us into the streets during their long demanding fight and into the corridors of the new government where her mother and father, who became senior officials under Mao Zedong, helped launch a social revolution not seen before on earth. That was her mother. But then what happened is what I want you to learn about today on the Michael Savage podcast. Yung Shang will describe her own childhood inside the hierarchy of China's communist elite, which was a world of privilege and very fierce politics, where only the very loyal to the top could survive. And then you will understand why after a brief period in the Red Guards, the author turned against the tyranny of Mao. She tells the story of the Cultural Revolution in which her own parents, who were loyal communists, were denounced, tormented, and sent to labor camps far from the luxuries of the homes that they had known. Her father, a loyal Maoist, then stood up to Mao Zedong, was isolated and driven insane, and gradually hounded to death. The author herself, while a teenager, was exiled at the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and a barefoot doctor. You will learn what happens when you give in to tyranny. All this and more on the Michael Savage podcast today, what a communist takeover would look like, because we're pretty far into it already. Make no mistake about it. Thanks for listening. Share it with five others. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Good morning. So pleased to speak with you. I love your book. I read it years ago. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank I, you. I, I hate to say book because it's about a life that was tragic at the time. And I don't mean to trivialize what you and your family went through. 
Um, well, thank you. Um, do you mean wild swans? Yes. First of all, welcome to the Michael Savage podcast. I should start with that. And your book is so deep and your description of your own childhood inside the hierarchy of China's communist elite. People don't realize that you began in the aristocracy of China. And um, is that true? Yes. Well, my parents were um, communists um, and they rose to be communist officials, rather high officials. So I grew up in the very privileged environment of the communist elite. Um, we lived in a compound with armed guards and chauffeurs and the cooks. Um, so I grew up so much taking hierarchy and the privilege for granted. Uh, when I first went to Britain, I thought Britain was wonderfully classless compared to China. Well, I think you found out it isn't. <laughs> There's still a very deep class structure in England. Certainly. In my, it, it, don't you think? Don't you think there's still a class differential in England? It's not at all like um, what it was like in China. Okay. In, in, in England, I mean, in Wild Swans, I talked in some detail about how we lived. Um, and it's um, and the relationship between the privileged and the underprivileged, the gap is so big and was so big. It, it wasn't like in England. Mm. What's interesting to me is that you originally joined the Red Guards and then you turned against the tyranny of Mao once you saw the um, viciousness towards the people. Isn't that correct? Um, yes. Um, I, I was 14 years old when the Cultural Revolution started in 1966. And like all my urban contemporaries, I joined the Red Guard. Um, at my time, at that time, sort of everybody was a Red Guard. Mm. Uh, we had grown up under a personality cult of Mao, mm. and we had been intensely brainwashed. Mm. Mao was like our God. You know, when we were children, if we wanted to say what mm. I say is absolutely true, um, we would say, I swear to Chairman Mao. And mm. so um, as teenagers, when Mao called on us to join the Red Guard, so we all joined Red Guard. Um, and then, of course, then the Cultural Revolution went on and um, I saw the horrible things, the torture, um, I mean, just, just terrifying. Um, and then I then got out of this brainwashed state um, of, my, of my mind. Again, I'm looking at your book, Wild Swans, which I've had for many years, incidentally. And of course, it's it, it's so deep. The history of your family is so deeply ingrained in his in the history of China that the average person listening, I don't think can relate to what you lived through and what you saw that you survived is a, is a miracle to me. But what I'm interested today and I think would be most useful for the listeners without trying to lead you into saying something you, I don't think anyone could anyway, <laughs> uh, 
say anything you don't believe in. I'm terrified about what's going on in the United States today with the you take people in our own media and Congress who are in love with mild forms of Maoism, in my opinion, the same language, the same denunciation of uh, white people, for example, in, in my opinion, is the equivalent of denunciation of classes in your time. And what I'm afraid of here is what this could lead to. We have a cultural revolution going on in America right now. It's different in some ways and similar in others. We have a class warfare going on in America, in the West, for that matter. And also, we have a race war going on uh, in the West. And uh, my, my biggest fear, Dr. Chang, is that this could lead to what you yourself lived through, is that an irrational fear? Um, well, I, you know, I, you know America, so um, you are quite right to take lessons from history to safeguard America. Um, but I also wanted to say that in China, the Cultural Revolution was completely different from what I what I, the bit I know about what's happening in America. I mean, at my time, there was violence and atrocities committed throughout China. You know, for example, my father uh, was designated as an enemy. He was arrested, tortured, driven insane. And he was forced to burn his books because all books were burned across China, oh. only the selected works of Mao. Is that and, uh, that's so important for me to learn? Yes. I mean, all books. I, I you know, I can't tell you how horrifying it, it was for nearly 10 years. There were virtually no books in people's houses. Um, you know, you have a few books um, uh, sanctioned books allowed, books allowed, mm. but the vast majority of books were burned, mm. and there were no libraries. Libraries were closed down, and books were burned. Oh my God. No museums, no theaters, no cinemas. Cinemas and theaters were turned into torture chambers. My mother mm. was imprisoned in a cinema that was um, that was uh, closed down and and um, it was it's and it was just terrible i mean in my school schools were closed mm. for many years and mao wanted children to have no schools to go to and mm. um, so they could have time and the energy to denounce, to torture and denounce their teachers. Mm. I saw in my school, I saw my teachers being stood up on, on the stage, um, you know, on the platforms in the, in the sports field, former sports field of the school. They were stood on benches. They were forced to bend down and they were kicked and beaten. And my English language teacher was elderly. He fell, his head 
cut um, the, um, the, mm. the the bench, and the blood was pouring from his forehead. You know, we were ch- as children, we were all forced to watch this, and I I can remember vividly the terror. I mean, this this scene um, instilled in my life in mm. a way. My entire generation was brutalized mm. by this. We all saw these scenes. Mm. Um, and we all saw people being beaten up and people committing suicide, you know, mm. around just the people I knew. I mean, there were hundreds deaths. I mean, that was the Cultural Revolution. I can tell you it's just, I mean, it was just incredible. Um, I know, I, Dr. Mm. Chang, in your book, Wild Swans, um, you write a quote, the more books you read, the more stupid you become. Mm. Th- that apparently ties in with what you uh, just said uh, on uh, in, in our discussion. But if we can go back a little bit, you came from an aristocratic family of power and wealth. You were targeted as the enemies of the, of the people's revolution, so to speak. Your family was destroyed. You, even though you had been a member of the Red Guard, apparently you were um, you were appalled by what you saw in the in the Red Guards, what they were doing to people. Hmm. And your parents were denounced. They were tormented. They were sent to labor camps. Your father Hmm. sounds like a great man who stood up to Mao. Hmm. He was driven insane. Mm-hmm. And how did the death and you yourself escape the firing squad uh, by being exiled to the edge of the Himalayas? Is that true? Well, um, all is true, except that I wasn't stood stood up in front of a firing squad. Um, and my mother was, but that was in her younger days against the nationalists, against the Kuomintang when she was an underground communist. And, but my mother was wow. in the cultural revolution. My father, I, you, know, you, you said what happened to my father, but my mother was under tremendous pressure to denounce my father. Mm. She refused. So as a result, she went through over a hundred of those bloody denunciation meetings. Mm. She was made to kneel on broken glass. Um, She was paraded in the streets where children spat at her and threw stones at her. Um, She was exiled to a camp, but she survived. Mm. Sounds like a very amazing woman like yourself. You became a barefoot doctor. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I was exiled to the edge of the Himalayas and worked for three years as a peasant and as a barefoot doctor. A barefoot doctor was a doctor without any training because, as you just quoted, Mao said, the more books you read, the more stupid you become. And that became the guideline for health and education. So I became a so-called doctor without any training. And all I had was a book called Barefoot Doctor's Manual. And on the one hand, on one page, there were symptoms 
on the opposite page, there were prescriptions. Goodness. Um, so all, I mean, you can see all the peasants wisely steered well clear of me and went to consult doctors who were trained before the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> so, so actual doctors were banished because they knew too much me- about medicine? Well, there were a lot of them were banished. Well, to start with, there were there was a great shortage of doctors in China. Mm. So a lot of peasants, maybe most peasants, had no access to doctors or medicine. And Mao knew this. He actually said it. Um, but he, uh, rather than taking responsibility as the head of the regime, he blamed doctors as though this state of affairs was the, the prop was the was the fault of the doctors. So a do- lot of doctors were denounced and but but there were some were banished. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the villages where I went to, there there had been a few doctors Anyway, I mean, in one village I was in, there was one, um, there were two, one properly trained doctor Mm. and one other semi-trained doctor. And and then, of course, they were taking care of lots and lots of people. Um, So I was installed as um, the so-called barefoot doctor, which meant a doctor without any training. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. I know time is short, Dr. Chang, and your life is so vast and rich that several uh, uh, movies could be made about what you've experienced. So I'm going to try and make it a little Hmm. briefer than I would like in the sense of getting to know you and introducing you to the people who listen to my program. Uh, You grew up under occupation uh, by the Japanese and later the Russians. And then civil war broke out between the communists and Shanghai Shek's Komitang. And you fought against the nationalists. Then you, of course, became an enemy, not only of the nationalists, but of the communists. And, uh, what does that teach us is that dictatorships are the same no matter who they may be when they become power mad, whether they're nationalist or communist. At the end of the day, they're the same in the way they mistreat the human race. Uh, I think what you were just saying was about my mother uh, rather than myself. And my mother was born in 1931. So she lived through Japanese occupation in Manchuria and China. Oh. Oh, and, I'm sorry. And I, I know that's all right. I was born in 1952. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I've, I've, I've moved the two no. people together. I was that's born in 1942. So I was trying mm-hmm. to connect the dots here um, and, and try well, to make some connection between what you lived through and the uh, mild form of cultural revolution that we've been going through here in America and where it might lead us is what I'm curious about and how bad it could get here. But that's that's something we can't really predict. Things have a way of correcting themselves in America. So there are some things in your in your book that that are very interesting, mm. which is many things. Sorry, I don't mean some things. What is this about Mao's war on sparrows? That's an obscure point. 
What was the war on sparrows? Right. And I lived through that so-called war on sparrows because Mao wanted a lot of food, um, lots to peasants to produce a lot of food. But sparrows eat grain. And so Mao, who was no good at economics or running the economy, then ordered the whole population to get rid of sparrows. I was a child then, but I remember sitting in the courtyard with the adults and banging our saucepans to create a gigantic thing. So the sparrows would fall down and um, we would run after them and they would be killed. Now, Now, of course, not only sparrows, but other birds were killed as well. Now, the really... Terrifying thing is why Mao was so, you know, um, why producing all this food uh, so obsessed Mao. It was not because he wanted more food to feed his people, Mm. but because he wanted food to export to Russia and the Eastern block Mm. in exchange for military technology Mm. and equipment so he could build China into a first-class military power, world power, and the number one world superpower, so he could dominate the world. This was Mao's dream, Mm. a dream he pursued ever since he took power in China in 1949. I didn't realize this when I was writing Wild Swans, but in my next book with my husband, John Halliday, and we spent 12 years writing a biography of Mao. Mm. And, and we realized this from the mountains of archive documents and numerous and, and the interviews. And um, the, the famine as a result of Mao's superpower program took place in 1958 and 1961. And this was called the Great Leap Forward. Oh, yes. It was Mao's Great Leap Forward to become the world number one military superpower. And uh, for this, he needed the Russians' military know-how, but he paid for those expensive technology and equipment with the food. Um, and he, so he needed this food for export. He knew his people were dependent on this food for survival, hmm. but he didn't care. Didn't and care. he said for all his projects to take off, maybe half of China may well have to die. Oh, my God. As a result, China had this gigantic famine between the four years of 1958 and 1961. 40 million people, four zero, not 14, as I think some people might think. Four zero million people died of starvation. People don't know. Nobody can fathom what those numbers mean. It's incomprehensible to us. 
Dr. Chang, on a trivial note, I'm somewhat mm. of an art collector. And one of the objects that I purchased years ago in a Chinese antique store in San Francisco were Ming Dynasty wooden food, food, dog, food dogs from mm. a house in China. They're mm. beautiful. They're, they're very beautiful. They were smuggled out. And of course, I know the story that food dogs were considered bourgeois and they were either destroyed Mm. on the spot or they were hidden by the people as these were buried Mm. in jars under the ground and smuggled out of China, uh, something along those lines. Why was he obsessed with destroying the art of China? Well, Mao wanted uh, this sounds absolutely crazy. He actually he wanted to create a cultural desert in China. So people would not think I mean, people just blindly obey his orders. Oh, my God. He saw people as um, as um, um, labor force. Mm. Um, and so in the culture in the culture revolution and even earlier, as soon as he took power in the land reforms, huh. he had uh, sorry, he confiscated systematically confiscated artworks from people's homes. I mean, as you said, some people hid their treasures and others were destroyed in the Cultural Revolution, but a lot of them were also hoarded by the state. Ah. Um, So he would export those for foreign currency, for hard currency. Hitler did the same thing. He seized art, calling it degenerate art, stored the art. And of course, Goering was a great collector of the very art they were denouncing as degenerate art in Nazi Germany. One other thing, and people don't know this, and I don't know this if this is 100 percent correct, were pet dogs considered a waste and bourgeois? And were they uh, killed in, in communist China on the Mao? In the cities, yes, um, because in Mao's regime fed people in the cities by giving them rations of food. And these foods were, you know, pitiful. They were just barely enough. Mm. It depends on good years or bad years. And they were barely enough to feed the city dwellers. Mm. So no one was allowed to, to have pet dogs. Um, but in the countryside, because he also wanted the peasants to go out and work, and, um, the, pe- and the theft was rife in those years. Mm. And so the peasants were allowed to have dogs to guard their houses. Isn't that that's something? These are obscure points to the average listener. They don't know that Mao was such a madman that he actually had dogs killed. They may not relate to much of what we're talking about, but if they learn that he killed pet dogs, then they may actually listen to the rest of the story. And they might look up your book, Wild Swans by Zheng Shang, which has so much in it. It's hard to believe you have li- not hard to believe. Again, it's a it's a phrase that shouldn't be used. I believe it. But to think that someone has lived through such a scope of history and has lived to tell the story is a human story that needs to be told and understood by many 
because as has been said, history repeats itself in many ways. And I this is my own editorializing. What I see going on in the United States today with the denunciation of white people, for example, in the revolutions going on in the universities, I see some of the same tendencies here. Um, the only difference is, is that they're not burning books yet in this country. They're just denun denouncing teachers who don't comply with the, let us say, concept of the so-called woke world that we are inheriting. And I'm terrified that a lot of this is borrowed from Mao's revolution. But again, I don't want to drag you into U.S. politics. I don't think you're interested in that uh, as a discussion. Are there any final thoughts for this uh, for this interview that you would like the average listener and it's listened the podcast is listened to around the world, by the way. Are there any thoughts that you would like to leave the people with Dr. Chang? Uh, I'm very anxious about today's China hmm. because some leaders also wanted to drag China back to Maoist days. Ah. Um, and that's just the thought is just terrifying. Mm. I mean, having lived through that, you ca I can't tell you how terrifying it was. I mean, in fact, okay, now I've, I've said enough about the horrors of Mao's days. I think it's unlikely that China will get back to the good, uh, to, the, to the bad Maoist days. Mm -hmm. Um, but just the thought that um, some wanted to drag China, to turn the clock back and drag China back to that horrible days. And some wanted to inherit Mao's dream huh. of, um, of dominating the world um, by building China into a military, military superpower. I mean, that's terrifying for me. Well, China is certainly becoming a powerful military force on the planet. And uh, look at today's news, Dr. Chang, with the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine and the West weekly saying we're going to impose sanctions on Russia, knowing the sanctions have almost no effect on Russia. China steps up and says we're going to buy some of the Russian exports in order to bolster the Russian economy. It seems to me that Russia and China have inadvertently been driven closer together as a result of this mishandling of the Ukraine situation. Do you have any comments on the situation from the point of view of your historical perspective of China? I mean, I, I, it's very difficult because, I mean, you know, I got all my stories and all my conclusions through studying documents. Um, the past, I basically dealt with events and people in the past. I see. Um, and so it's hard to offer this um, without, the, without knowing the inner workings of the regime. I don't really know how mm. they make decisions. I hear you. Um, but historically, um, I mean, China had a lot of problems with Russia, and Russia certainly coveted um, some territories uh, of China's. Mm -hmm. It had historically carved off a huge hunk, hunks of China mm -hmm. and, and uh, has been coveting 
um, other um, areas. So there's, um, I would say, would not be a smooth going relationship based on mm. both being dictators. Okay, that's fair enough. I Again, I don't want to bring you into local politics and we can eliminate this if you feel uncomfortable. There's now talk that because of the weakness of the United States in the West with regard to Russia's taking of Ukraine, which almost seems to be the de facto conclusion at this point, that China is seeing the weakness of the West and they're liable to make a move on Taiwan. If you feel comfortable, we can discuss it. If not, we can just drop this complete this completely from the discussion. What would you what would you feel like doing? Well, I, you know, I because as I said, I don't know the inner workings of the regime. I think they would, they would certainly would. This would be something they would like to do, but maybe there are also other factors they yes. need to take into consideration. Let me and, go back before you leave, Doctor Chang, since I'm interested in art, mm. and and I mentioned my my Ming Dynasty food dogs, yes, my wooden food dogs. Mm. On an obscure note, were the food dogs part of Chinese culture and they they were part of Chinese culture going back to historic times, I suppose. Were they used on the corners of houses to scare off evil spirits? What what was the purpose of the food dog? Uh, well, I'm not I'm not an expert and this. I have to say I'm not an um, expert. I know there is this tradition, but exactly uh, exactly why I haven't really studied it. So I don't wish to um, spec to give you an answer which I'm not certain of. Well, I will keep my 16th century food dogs facing north and west <laughs> in my house and hope yeah. and hope for the best. Uh, Doctor. Well, I mean, I think I've out out uh, spent the time that you have for me today. And I want people to know, well, you know, the book is an older book, but that doesn't mean it's not an important book. I mean, this book, Wild Swans, I found in a used bookstore many years ago when I became interested in the subject. But what you have lived through is an epic. And the only comparison I can make and comparisons are odious. I know that is uh, the sweep of history as presented in. Uh, Dr. Zhivago, I mean, what you have lived through is, is almost a China version or a Chinese version of Dr. Zhivago, if not even in a grander uh, sweep of, of human history. And I can just simply say your spirit to me is ex extremely inspiring. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And, and I thank you very much for the time that you have spent with us today on this podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. All I, right. I, Thank you, Dr. Chang. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. And now we're going to play for you some examples of how far along the path to communism we may have already traveled here in America. First, we're going to have Biden quoting Mao Zedong, if you can believe it. And then the worst of them all, Bernie the criminal Sanders praising Fidel Castro. Listen and weep. Expression goes, women hold up half the sky. He's saying, using a different context, Chinese saying, women hold up half the world. That was 
President Biden quoting Chairman Mao, one of the greatest mass murderers in human history. Now, you've heard about Hitler, and we know how horrible he was. We know about the six million Jews who were killed, the three million others who were subjected to torture and murder in his death camps. We know about the wars that Hitler started, one of the world's true monsters, but there were other monsters. Hitler was a socialist. National socialism, after all, is Nazism. The name Nazism is an acronym for National Socialism, which I taught to people on my radio show over 15 years ago. But Stalin, of course, was a socialist, another mass murderer. And then, of course, there's Mao Zedong, the great hero of the American communist left. He was very big in the 60s, Mao Zedong. And there was a little American edition, an English edition, quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong, which I actually have in my hand, which was happily given out in America by left-wingers thinking it was cute. Can you imagine handing out booklets like Mein Kampf? No, you couldn't. But they gave out Chairman Mao Zedong's quotes, and I have them in my hand, and you're going to see how far this country has fallen, how close we are to losing everything, as I read quotes from this book from Chairman Mao Zedong. And this copy, by the way, was found in my archives by my assistant. He said, where'd you get this? I said, in the 1970s, I was given this in San Francisco by a man who owned a bookstore called City Lights Books. He passed away last year. Lawrence Ferlinghetti thought it was cute to give out copies of Chairman Mao's book. Now, remember, in those days, people were wearing blue Chinese uh, outfits and Tai Chi slippers. They thought they were all little communists, and they thought it was cute. So if you look anywhere through here, and I, I know, compare it to some of the news stories of the day, I can read you the chapter titles. And I can give you some of the quotes. It's all about revolution, revolutionary theory, and how to overcome, quote, the bourgeoisie, which is the middle class. It's all about class struggle. This is exactly what BLM and Antifa are engaged in, as is the Democrat Party today. So let me begin with the contents page. Communist Party, classes and class struggle, socialism and communism, the correct handling of contradictions among the people, war and peace, imperialism and all reactionaries are paper tigers does that does that sound familiar that's why they attack you in restaurants with impunity dare to struggle and dare to win the people's war the people's army leadership of party committees the mass line political work relations between officers and men relations between the army and the people education the training of troops serving the people patriotism and internationalism revolutionary heroism Building our country through diligence and frugality, self-reliance and arduous struggle, methods of thinking and methods of work, correcting mistaken ideas, discipline, communists, cadres, youth, women, culture and art, and study. So I'm going to jump around in this book. And he starts by saying the force at the core leading our cause forward is the Chinese Communist Party. The theoretical basis guiding our thinking is Marxism-Leninism. Theoretical basis guiding our thinking is Marxism-Leninism. So this Chinese communist, Mao Zedong, got his ideas from the Russian communists, Marx and Lenin. It resulted in the death of 30 million people in China. He gave that at the opening address of the first session of the first National People's Congress, of the People's Republic of China, September 15th, 1954. 
He says, if there is to be revolution, there must be a revolutionary party. Without a revolutionary party, without a party built on the Marxist-Leninist revolutionary theory and in the Marxist-Leninist revolutionary style, it is impossible to lead the working class and the broad masses of the people in defeating imperialism and its running dogs. That's a speech from 1948. So where are we today? Is the Democrat Party today a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary party? No. But there's a wing of that party that is clearly Marxist-Leninist, and they are in league with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. They are the core of the Communist Party USA. We know that or we don't know that? What methods do they use? How are they engaged? What can we do to fight them? The more I read to you today, the more your eyes are going to be opened. Your eyes are going to be opened, and then what are you going to do? You'll no longer be blind. I wrote this this morning. It's funny. I woke up this morning and I wrote, there are those with eyes who see not, and those who are blind who see all. There are those with eyes who see not, and those who are blind who see all. Please don't be blind. Many of you have eyes and you're blind. You're blind to what's going on right in front of your eyes. So let me continue with this little red book of the mass murderer Mao Zedong, who was just so cute. In our country, bourgeois and petty bourgeois ideology, anti-Marxist ideology, will continue to exist for a long time. Let me pause there. Anyone who opposes them is considered an anti-Marxist. That's who you are. So we now have a Marxist, anti-Marxist struggle going on in this country. Anyone who stands up to them is purged. For example, Biden just threw the head of the Space Force out because he tweeted something on his own social media about how Marxism was taking over the military. They fired the head of the U.S. Space Force. Tell me that's not Marxist ideology. So Mao Zedong goes on. He says, we have won the basic victory in transforming the ownership of the means of production. Well, that has not yet happened here. Right now, the Marxist-Leninists own Jack. They own nothing. Or shall I say, Jack owns social media, and they own nothing. But we have not yet won complete victory on the political and ideological fronts. In the ideological field, the question of who will win in the struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie has not been really settled yet. We still have to wage a protracted struggle against bourgeois and petty bourgeois ideology. That means against the middle class, against home ownership, against private property. He goes on. Mao Zedong writes, it is wrong not to understand this and to give up ideological struggle. All erroneous ideas, all poisonous weeds, all ghosts and monsters must be subjected to criticism. In no circumstance should they be allowed to spread unchecked, meaning critical race theory is the number one tool right now of destroying our children's minds of criticizing them for being white and standing up to these communist bastards. Do you understand what's at stake here? You better make sure you're counted. Mao Zedong goes on. However, the criticism should be fully reasoned, analytical, and convincing, and not rough, bureaucratic, metaphysical, or dogmatic. Interesting. So that's why they're doing it in the schools and calling it race theory. They're trying to be reasoned, analytical, and convincing. It's not theory. Critical race theory is anti-white racism. Do you understand that? That was a speech at the Chinese Communist Party's National Conference 
on propaganda work, March 12, 1957. I'm reading to you from Mao Zedong's, Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, and I'm relating it to what is going on in America today. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. At the end of the day, as workers and as people of society, we're the ones creating wealth, not a corporate CEO. It's not a CEO that's, make, that's actually creating $4 billion a year. It is the millions of workers in this country that's creating billions of dollars of economic productivity a year. And our system should reflect that. So we're looking at the horror story of uh, communism, Chinese communism, Mao Zedong, the hero of Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and a good portion of the American misguided youth. And I'm reading from Mao's Little Red Book, which was given out for free in San Francisco in the 70s, in this case by Lawrence Ferlinghetti of City Lights Books. I always called it a communist bookstore. And, of course, I was right. I'm usually right about politics. I've rarely been wrong, which is why I'm still in the business of politics. And so I want to continue, and eventually I'm going to read to you and tell you some stories about what communism actually did to people. And not me telling you. I'll read from a book written by a woman called Life and Death in Shanghai by a woman named Yan Shang, who actually lived through this. The woman lived through this. She was born in Peking in 1915. She studied at the London School of Economics. She married a Chinese diplomat. They lived in Australia. And following the Communist Revolution, her husband became a general manager of Shell in Shanghai until he died in 57. And it talks about what they did to her when the communists took over the country. The miseries inflicted by the Cultural Revolution on this woman, her friends and associates. The history of the Cultural Revolution charting the rise and fall of the Red Guards, the senility and death of that bastard Mao Zedong, the power struggle of the Gang of Four, a first-hand account of the nightmare of China's communist cultural revolution, and shows the extremes of human nature. And I will tell you, your hair will stand up when I'm through, because Bernie Sanders is the worst man in American history. The absolute antithesis to George Washington is Bernie Sanders, the worst, the worst man on earth. He came along like a grandfatherly figure. And he said, I'm not a socialist, I'm a Democrat socialist. And he was the Pied Piper to low life, stupid people like occasional cortex. Rita Talab, a hater of America. She's a Palestinian revolutionary who wants to destroy America and the Jews and Christians. So I'm going to read you now from Mao Zedong again. Here he is. Taken as a whole, the Chinese revolutionary movement led by the Communist Party embraces the two stages. That is, the democratic and the socialist revolutions. Shall I pause right there? Bernie Sanders came along and said he's not a communist, he's not a socialist, he's a democrat socialist. And morons took it hook, line, and sinker. I'll go again back to Mao Zedong. Two stages, the democratic stage and the socialist stage which are two essentially different revolutionary processes. And the second process, which is socialism, can be carried through only after the first has been completed. The left in America is now trying to complete the first phase. And here it is. I'll go back to Mao. The democratic revolution is the necessary preparation for the socialist revolution. That would be getting the senile Joe Biden 
and Kamala Harris into office. That's the democratic revolution. That's the necessary preparation for the socialist revolution. And he goes on and says, and the socialist revolution is the inevitable sequel to the democratic revolution. The ultimate aim for which all communists strive is to bring about a socialist and communist society. Hmm. Comes from the Chinese revolution and the Chinese communist party, December 1939 selected work. So now you know the genesis of it. There were communists in America long before Bernie Sanders, but he actually was the first winner take all. He goes on in another speech, Mao Zedong. Socialist revolution aims at liberating the productive forces. The changeover from individual to socialist collective ownership in agriculture and handicrafts and from capitalist to socialist ownership in private industry and commerce is bound to bring about a tremendous liberation of the productive forces. Thus, the social conditions are being created for a tremendous expansion of industrial and agricultural production. Of course, it failed once they took over. And millions of Chinese died once the government took over agriculture. So the social system is first attacked through democracy and then changed from private to public ownership. From private to public ownership. That's what the Biden administration is currently doing. They do it through a long march, through slow steps. I've been studying this since I'm 18 years old. So this book fell back into my hands at quite the right moment. When I come back on the Savage Nation, I will read from this piece from Mao Zedong, a mass murderer. The question of suppressing counter-revolutionaries is what I will talk about right here on the Savage Nation podcast, because you are a counter-revolutionary. You are the enemy of the left You know all of this, correct? But how much do you really know? How far do you think they have come? How far do they have to go until they seize your house and your possessions and put you into a labor camp? How far will it be? How long will it be until we are like communist China where the Red Guards come to your house? Not too far because the Black Lives Matter movement has already unleashed their thugs in the streets. Antifa should have been put down a long time ago, but they're not. Black Lives Matter is a disgusting group of murderous revolutionaries under the guise of being liberationists for black people. They're not liberationists for black people. They are the armies that will be unleashed upon all of us when the right time comes. They are the Red Guards. They are the Khmer Rouge. They will deputize the thugs who are knifing and stabbing white people and Asian people in the streets. They will be given uniforms and badges and knives and guns, and they will knock on your door in the middle of the night and take you away. That's the dark nightmare that I have for this country. If you think it's a paranoid nightmare, please do not listen to any more of this podcast. Because when I read to you from Life and Death in Shanghai, a woman who actually lived through it, you will see how far they have come, where it will go, and what we might be able to do to stop these bastards before our lives are gone. Michael Savage, a host like no other.
And everybody was totally convinced that Castro was the worst guy in the world. All the Cuban people were going to rise up in rebellion against Fidel Castro. They forgot that he educated their kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. You know, not to say that uh, Fidel Castro or Cuba are perfect. They are certainly not. So we're talking about how far the communists have come in America. You call them Marxists. You think it's a joke. You think it's about peace and freedom and love. It's about death and disaster. And I'm talking about what happened in China, Cambodia, the Soviet Union, where persecution became the norm. And here in America, we're being persecuted by Black Lives Matter, by the American left, by the media, by Antifa. And you will see where this will go unless you stand up and be counted. I'm reading to you from a book called The Life and Death in Shanghai by a woman, Yan Shang, who was caught up in these revolutionary times and she spent six and a half years in solitary confinement during the Cultural Revolution, followed by years of constant surveillance and final rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. That's what went on behind the bamboo curtains. You will find out what Chinese communism was like. You will find out how it destroyed human lives. So let me read you a page here. So you get a picture and open your eyes so you're no longer blind to what's going on. So they come to her house and they call her a revolutionary, counter-revolutionary. And they tell her to pack uh, that they're throwing her out of her house. They went through digging through her walls for gold and jewels. She had none. They ripped her house to pieces. They couldn't find anything. And the Red Guards, who then were, remember, young people, young people. When you hear young people from Bernie Sanders, the young people were the worst of all of them. They were the scum of the earth. Young people. They would be the ones stabbing people on subways. Those are the young people. When the, everything was packed, the trucks came. But to my great disappointment, the Red Guards did not leave the house when the trucks drove away with my possessions. So let me back it up a bit. After daybreak, several Red Guards and revolutionaries threw the door open. It seemed that their dispute, whatever it was, was resolved. The girl shouted, get up, get up, get up. A woman revolutionary told me to get something to eat in the kitchen quickly and then come upstairs to do some useful work. So she gets something to eat after they basically mentally tortured her for a few days. And her kidney collapsed and she drank water, ate some vegetables. Then a Red Guard opened the kitchen door and yelled, are you having a feast? What a long time you are taking eating that rice. Hurry up, hurry up. Now this is this woman in her own house. Her servant Lao Chao and I followed the Red Guards up the stairs. Chen Ma also joined us. We found that the Red Guards and the few remaining revolutionaries required our help in packing up my belongings so that they could be taken away. I helped readily to get rid of them. The presence of the Red Guards and the revolutionaries was more intolerable to me than the loss of my possessions. They seemed to me alien creatures from another world with whom I had no common language. Does that sound like you looking in the eyes of Antifa or your teacher in college? I'll go on. In the eyes of the Red Guards and the revolutionaries, Lao Chao was not a class enemy, even though they probably thought him misguided and lacking in socialist awareness to work for me. They chatted with him freely. I could see Lao Chao was doing his best to appear friendly, too. While we were sitting on the floor packing up the things that had been scattered everywhere, I heard the Red Guards excitedly discussing their forthcoming journey to Peking to be reviewed by Chairman Mao. And they talk about how much they can't wait to be seen by Chairman Mao like their Hitler, the Chinese Hitler. Okay. I was interested in what the Red Guards were saying. It seemed the army was working behind the scenes to support and direct the Red Guards' activities. Let me pause right there. 
Biden just purged the head of the U.S. Space Force because he tweeted something against the Marxism that is creeping into the U.S. military. Be very frightened indeed, ladies and gentlemen of the Savage Nation. When everything was packed, the trucks came. A woman revolutionary said to me, you must remain in the house. You're not allowed to go out of the house. The Red Guards will take turns to be here to watch you. I was astonished and angry. I asked her, what authority have you to keep me confined in the house? I have the authority of the proletarian revolutionaries. I want to see the order in writing, I said, trying to control my trembling voice. Why do you want to go out? Where do you want to go to? A woman like you would be beaten to death outside. We're doing you a kindness in putting you under house arrest. Lao Chao will be allowed to stay and do the marketing for you. Do you know what's going on outside? This is a full-scale revolution going on. She says, I don't particularly want to go out. It's the principle of the matter. What principle? Since you don't want to go out, why argue with me? You stay here until we decide what to do with you. That's an order. She swept out of the house. I was given the box spring of my own bed placed on the floor to sleep on. A change of clothes and a sweater hung in the empty cupboard. A suitcase containing my winter clothes and the green canvas bag with the quilt and blankets for the colder days were left in a corner of the room. Besides the table and chairs in the kitchen, I was left with two chairs and a small coffee table. The Red Guards detailed to watch me sat on the two chairs outside my room so that I had to sit on the box spring on the floor. My daughter was allowed to live in her own room, but I was not allowed to in there or to speak to her when she came home, which was very seldom, as she had to spend more and more nights at the film studio taking part in the Cultural Revolution. Did you hear this? And she goes on and talks about when she's placed under house arrest and she's called a class enemy and her servant pleads with the Red Guards not to take her away and they say to her, don't you realize she is your class enemy? Why should you care whether she has enough clothes or not, the Red Guards said. Chen Ma's daughter seemed frightened of the Red Guards and urged Chen Ma to leave, but Chen Ma said, I must say goodbye to Mei Mei. Tears were streaming down her face. One of the Red Guards became impatient. She faced Chen Ma militantly and said, haven't you stayed in this house long enough? She is the daughter of the class enemy. Why do you have to say goodbye to her? When I put my arms around Chen Ma's shoulders to hug her for the last time, she burst into loud crying. The Red Guards pulled my arms away and pushed Chen Ma and her daughter out of the front door. Lao Chao followed them out with Chen Ma's luggage and I heard him getting a pedicab for them. You want me to go on? Because it's going to get much worse. It's going to get very, very bad if I continue reading to you what happened in China after the Mao Zedong Revolution and what it has to do with here in America under the Communist Revolution that was recently started by Bernie Sanders, the greatest enemy the American people have ever had come along, and he's playing a major role in the Democrat Party today, and Joe Biden is nothing but a stooge and a moron. So here's an astonishing piece from the book. And again, I'm reading from the mass murderer Mao Zedong's Little Red Book, once oh so popular in leftist circles. But if you read this book the way I am looking at it, you will see how far they have come uh, in taking over this country and most of the West. So here Mao Zedong talks about Taiwan and the Arabs, who he considers his friends. Does that sound familiar? Here it is. U.S. imperialism invaded China's territory of Taiwan and has occupied it for the past nine years. This was written back in 1958. I will remind you that Taiwan was created by people who fled communist Chinese government and created a beautiful, booming society on Taiwan. And then he talks about the United States, and he says, the United States has set up hundreds of military bases in many countries all over the world. China's territory of Taiwan, Lebanon, and all military bases of the United States 
On foreign soil are so many nooses around the neck of U.S. imperialism. The nooses have been fashioned by the Americans themselves and by nobody else, and it is they themselves who have put these nooses around their own necks, handing the ends of the ropes to the Chinese people, the peoples of the Arab countries, and all the peoples of the world who love peace and oppose aggression. The longer the U.S. aggressors remain in those places, the tighter the nooses around their necks will become. Speech at the Supreme State Conference, September 8th, 1958. So if you look at those pushing Islam, you will see that Islam fundamentally is a communist doctrine, a top-down communist doctrine. It is not a religion. It's a political structure. And so he wisely saw his allies in the Muslim world. Do you understand this? And he said that our own military bases and our own military forces in these foreign places were nooses that we have put around our own necks. Unfortunately, he was right about that. How long have we been in Afghanistan? Afghanistan is like a noose around our neck. Why are we still there? What you've just heard can be summarized best in a Twitter video that I did just before we posted the podcast a day before. It summarizes what you have just heard, and I hope you can listen to these few minutes to recall everything that I have put into this podcast because it's very very critical that we see where this goes. Thank you very much for listening. Please share it with 10 friends. I'm Michael Savage. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Savage. You know, this is an interesting time of deception. In essence, I'm an American dissident. I began the podcast you're going to hear tomorrow, last week before the Presidio scandal struck me, reading from quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong from the Little Red Book. And the question was going to be, how far has or have the communists come in America? You'll be shocked to find out how far the communists have come in America. Do we have re-education camps? In a way, yes. They're called diversity training. They're called advertising on television and radio, which is hot brainwashing around the clock. We have complete denial as to who's conducting most of the violence in America. We hear about the horrible attacks upon Jews, and they don't say it's Arabs. We hear about the horrible attacks upon Asians for months on end, and they don't say it's largely African-American males. They lead you to believe it's white nationalists. How's that for a re-education camp? They don't need to put you in a camp to re-educate you. All they need to do is put your child into a classroom today and have some goon tell your child she's evil because she's white. You don't need a re-education camp when you have the lowest scum of the earth putting out ads on television which distort reality around the clock. So I was reading quotations from Chairman Mao, which you'll hear in detail on my podcast tomorrow. And then suddenly I was struck by a scandal of my own kind, which is eerily similar to that of the purges on the Mao Zedong. And that is, there are three Trump appointees on the Presidio Trust. I'm the only one who was purged by the Biden administration last week. Why was I purged and not the other Trump Appointees. Now, I'm the only one with any background whatsoever in environmental issues. Never forget that. I'm not putting them down. They're good people, but they're not there because they know anything about the environment. They don't. I do. So what happened was, is I suggested new exhibits in the officers club. A day before this all happened to me, I proposed God and the soldier at the Presidio, faith in the army over two centuries, that includes the Spanish and Mexican eras. 
prior to that, I had proposed several new military heritage exhibits, none of which are at all inflammatory. They're all rather benign. I asked repeatedly from the management of the Presidio to give me the approximate cost to install exhibits, and they would not answer me. And in fact, after they took me off the board, as you will find out on the podcast, they expunged the minutes of my emails asking them to tell me what it would cost to install these exhibits, because I had told them I have likely secured $2.5 million in funding. Now, this is from a group that fired many people because they were broke, went through the pandemic, no income, screaming about money. Here you have a board member says, I have $2.5 million likely to be able to bring to you, help me with this, and instead they fired me. You know why? Because they don't want the military heritage of the Presidio installed at the Presidio Officers Club. Why? Because this is a Eurocentric, anti-American, anti-military, anti-family, anti-God, anti-male, anti-white person administration. I cannot emphasize how important my being on the board and how important it is to the citizens personally. Remember, I have over 40 years working on conservation and environmental issues. The Presidio lands are a public trust that must be cared for by ardent conservationists and preservationists, not by political hacks of the type Biden will install. You'll hear more about it tomorrow on the Michael Savage podcast. And remember what it's about. It will be the Presidio trust scandal plus Mao Zedong, the mass murderer. How far have the communists come in America? I hope you got a chance not only to listen to that podcast, but to share it with as many people who are interested in saving themselves, their family, and the nation from what is going on today. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.